Okay, power just kicked back on the house, so I'm free to host another room. And this one is going to be a continuation of Whitney Webb's new book, One Nation Under Blackmail. So, hopefully, so pull me right back to where I was. Book number one. Now, what's going on here? Where was I? In notes. Okay, yeah. Actually, that was, I believe, the end of chapter one. We just finished. We are moving on to chapter two. Okay, so I'm going to update the episode, give people a chance to pop in, and we will update it to booze and blackmail. So, let me just shind out the invite. And this is going to be chapter two, Booze and Blackmail of Whitney Webb's new book. So let me just re-update the room real quick. Um, do chapter two, Booze and Blackmail. Booze and Blackmail, I like it. Sounds cool. Okay, back to the room. Room updated. We got public. What's up? I don't know. <laughs> Here we go into chapter two of Whitney Webb's new book titled Blue, uh, Booze and Blackmail. The Whiskey Men. So per his own account, Samuel Bronfman never planned to become one of North America's top liquor magnates. Um having previously aspired to a career in law, nevertheless, nevertheless, true to his family's last name, which means whiskey man. Uh, interesting. Bronfman means whiskey man. Cool. In Yiddish, he and his brothers went on to build a liquor empire that would rocket the Bronfmans into the upper echelons of the Western business elite. Though, though the road they traveled to get there was hardly elegant. While the Bronfmans, Bronfmans are now remembered as scions of Canada's upper class, this was certainly not the case when Samuel's parents, Mendel and Yashil Bronfman, brought the family to Canada from Bessarabia, now part of modern-day Moldova and Ukraine. Dun-dun-dun, you don't say. The connections between Jeffrey Epstein and Ukraine continue to grow, guys. Here we go. Um, I got to fire up a stogie for this one. And I got to take a little pee break, too, honestly. So <laughs> I had to get ready for all this reading. I kind of jumped into it without getting totally comfortable first. So pardon the holdup. But, yeah, this is kind of interesting how the uh, relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and Ukraine go way back. And this is right on par. This is just so pertinent. So Okay, I'm back. Sorry about the wait. Um, I'm going to fire up a stogie, get a little bit of chai tea, and we will continue in like less than a minute. Um, but yeah, 
relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and Ukraine goes back far and involved in whiskey people. Kind of interesting. Um, what's up, Karthik? You're here just in time. We're about to get into the second chapter of Whitney Webb's new book, and it is involving uh, Ukraine now. What's up, Karthik? Uh, what's up, man? You're going to play some of Whitney Webb's book? Yeah, I'm just reading it. I don't think the, I don't believe the audio book has dropped it. Maybe it has, but I'm just doing some reading. Oh, yeah, same thing. That's what I meant. Uh, what's on your mind? Oh, uh, not much. Just checking out this new book. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm not um, going to. I did a bunch. For long. Uh, did you see the uh, clip of Bernie uh, humiliating himself? Bernie Sanders humiliating himself. Not yet. It's it's like a clip he just made of the Biden. He just it was just came out like two days ago. It's where he like praises Biden for the student loan debt thing. Okay, well I don't know. I'm not not necessarily surprised by that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's a good friend of Joe Biden's, as we know, and uh, he may end up eating those words harder than he imagines as we go further into Whitney Webb's book here. Um, they're actually getting into the relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and Ukraine concerning uh, some of these early uh, whiskey, uh, how do you say, entrepreneurs. <laughs> so without yeah. any further ado, I'll kind of, I'll read it again well, for you. We'll give you a, a kind of recap of what's going on is, here. Is, is, is Joe Biden in the book? He's not in the first book. I don't believe he's in the first book. He might be in the second book a little bit. Because oh, he wow. does own, yeah, because he does own an island that is directly adjacent to Jeffrey Epstein's island. Actually, Jeffrey Epstein owns Little St. James Island. I think Joe Biden owns Greater St. James Island. Wait, are you sure? Because I, 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 out of all the oligarchs, Joe Biden's like one of the poorer ones. He's one does of he the actually what? on island. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Yeah, let me fact check that for you right now. Um, I, I know he, he's one of the poorest politicians. So that, if he owns the island, that really shocks me. Well, it's a little Virgin Island. You know. What? Yeah, it's, it's a small Virgin Island, you know. Um, I'm really shocked of Benefi because, yeah, I'm, I'm really shocked, actually, if he owns the island. Here's a fact check. Apparently, he does not own the island, according to Reuters. Let's see what's going on here. Okay, yeah, that's what Joe I Biden does not own island in the U.S. Virgin Islands. A previous version of this article referenced political article, blah, blah, blah. Posts circulating on Facebook make the primary claim that former vice president and current president Joe Biden owns a private island in the Caribbean next to St. James. Here's examples of the post. All right, yeah, it might have been some nonsense that I read online. Article outlines how in 2005, Biden's brother James and his wife Sarah bought a piece of land on Water Island in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The following year, they sold a third of the land for what have been the total cost of the entire property of Scott Green, co-founder of The land deal was related to Joe Biden's brother James, not Joe Biden. Political Politico reported that it was unclear if Joe was aware of his brother's sale, though Political reported Green and Joe Biden were close. Um, he never owned land on Water Island. His past vacationing in the U.S. Virgin Islands and his brother's land deal likely serve as the source of this misinformation. So that was a misinfo. Good thing I fact-checked that. It was his brother, actually. A profile on Maxwell published in Vanity Fair. Uh, 
The day after her arrest describes her relationship with American billionaire Ted Watt in the early 2000s, according to Vanity Fair. Couple sailed aboard the 240-foot megawatt she helped him purchase, the Plan B. It was equipped with a helipad, jacuzzi, elevator, gym, and onboard submarine, which Maxwell was soon licensed to pilot. <laughs> um, another, as reported by Newsweek, Reader's Fact Trip Team, verdict. Joe Biden does not own the island in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Articles produced by Reuters fact check team. Cool. So that's just totally not true. I'm not going to waste my time there. Um, let's see. Uh, Joe Biden's brother, James, is also caught up in federal probe. Um, Biden's hide lobbyist bought island property from Biden's brother. Okay. Interesting. But yeah, not actually Greater St. James Island. I had that totally wrong. But uh, the article that we're getting into here is related to uh, Ukraine and the modern, I think there could be a link to the modern war in what's going on here. In this chapter two, booze and blackmail, it's titled The Whiskey Men, or this segment is titled The Whiskey Men. So here's how it goes. Uh, Peter, on his own account, Samuel Bronth, uh, per his own account, Samuel Bronfman had never planned to become one of North America's top liquor magnates, uh, having previously aspired to a career in law. Nevertheless, true to his family's last name, which means whiskey man in Yiddish, he and his brothers went on to build a liquor empire that would rocket the Bronfmans to the upper echelons of the Western business elite through the road they traveled to get there was hardly elegant. While the Bronfmans are now remembered as scions of Canada's upper class, this was certainly not the case when Samuel's parents, Mendel Yechel Brofman, uh, brought the family to Canada from Bessarabia, now part of modern-day Moldova and Ukraine. In 1889, they had left as part of a wave of Jewish immigrants fleeing the anti-Semitic programs of Czarist Russia, leaving behind a somewhat profitable tobacco farming business. So in Bessarabia, they had been relatively well off and had immigrated to Canada along with two of their servants and their personal rabbi. However, Canada, particularly Mantanoba, where the Bronfmans eventually settled, was poorly, poorly suited for tobacco farming, forcing Yakul to labor in Canadian railroads and sawmills before moving to the sale of firewood and trading of livestock and fish. It would be their trading of horses that would eventually lead them to begin work in the hospitality sector and subsequently the liquor business. The Bronfman's beginnings, particularly following their arrival in Canada, stand in such stark contrast to their current reputation that even Sam's sons, Edgar and Charles, were kept in the dark by their own father regarding the family's business early days. Um, interesting. He would never tell us any of the early history. Um, that was uh, Edgar Bronfman would later remember of his father. Uh, a Bronfman biographer, former senior editor at The Economist, Nicholas Faith, would also write that underlying the family's riches was a deep sense of shame as to their origins and that Sam's generation had shared an absolute refusal to tell their offspring anything about their life before their arrival in the promised land, i.e. Canada. Part of the reason for this secrecy, even within the family and between their father and son, was likely related to the personal struggle of many immigrants, some of whom chose to turn their back on their lives prior to immigrating and strive to establish and prove their connections to the new land in which they find themselves. Indeed, Sam Bronfman went to such great lengths to do, to do just that, publicly claiming for much of his late life that he had been born on March 4th, 1981 in Brandon, Mentacoba, Canada. 
uh, obfuscating both his real date and place of birth. February 27th, 1889, Bessarabia. Uh, Michael Morris, one of the Bronfman's more sympathetic biographers, would write that Sam Bronfman uh, never truly abandoned his enthusiastic identification with the country which his career began, and his attempts to obfuscate his place of birth is perhaps the most significant indication of his obsession with the respectability he associated with the Canadian citizenship. While Sam Bronfman was undoubtedly ill at ease with his status as an immigrant, there's another factor that may explain his unwillingness and even his siblings to discuss the family's early days and specifically the chain of events and eventual alliances with unsavory characters that would lead them to the top of Canada's business elite. Dum, dum, dum. Sounds juicy. So at some point in the early 1890s, as he sampled spirits in a dinghy saloon after selling off some horses, Yechiel Bronfman mulled the merits of leaving behind a life of hard labor in favor of the intertwined businesses of hospitality and liquor sales. Sam Bronfman would later claim that it was actually he who had convinced his father to move into the hospitality and bartending, although most biographers doubt this, given Sam's age at the time. Regardless, it would be over a decade before the Bronfman family patriarch and his eldest sons managed to escape together to the uh, managed to scrape together the funds necessary to realize Yeshua's dreams. The Bronfmans had saved enough money to lease their first Canadian hotel, Anglo-American hotel in Emerson, Manitoba. Soon they acquired several more hotels in Yorkton, Sashwick, uh, Saka, <laughs> Saskatchewan, and later in Winnipeg. And beyond building a small yet profitable network of hotels prior to the onset of World War I, the dramatic shift in the family's fortune was largely thanks to the business acumen of Sam's brother, Harry, who managed to stave off the financial damage and legal trouble caused by the gambling and other unseemly habits of their older brother, Abe. Sam Bromfman formerly joined the new family business in 1907, though he would later regale some of his biographers with tales of how he'd been the original dynamo behind the family's success and hospitality, despite considerable evidence to the contrary. What is notable, however, is the fact that not long after Sam formally became involved in hotel management, the family's hotels were targeted by a series of unfortunate accusations, including when they went to renew the liquor license in Yorktown, in 1908, locals had alleged that the Bronfmans were guilty of violating local liquor laws and uh, condoning illegal gambling in their inns. The latter is particularly un, uh, particularly likely given the well-known gambling habits of Abe Bronfman, which were well known to have threatened the family business on more than one occasion. The same year that Sam joined the family's hotel business, the organization that would eventually bring prohibition to Canada also emerged the Social and Moral Reform Council, a joining of the leadership of various Protestant churches, the Women's Christian uh, Temperance Union, the Royal Templars of Temperance, <laughs> and other like-minded groups. The Social and Moral Reform Council was born out of a far-reaching Protestant religious movement of the period known as the Social Gospel Movement. It sought to fight social evils, particularly those ex uh, those caused or exacerbated by rapid urbanization and industrialization. For groups like the Social and Moral Reform Council, liquor quickly became a main target. The council and its allies managed to successfully appeal to many Canadians, both uh, those who shared and lacked their religious zeal. 
as bars and saloons were often disliked for other reasons aside from their moral depravity, such as their often far-reaching stenches and the fact that around a third of criminal prosecutions at the time were related to drunkenness. Uh, though the temperance movement in Canada deeply divided its population, it got the boost it needed to become common policy with the onset of the First World War. And in Canada, prohibition was initially a provincial matter with a handful of provinces having enacted prohibition laws prior to the war. Yet once the curtain of war had fallen, many Canadians came to believe that banning the sale, trade, and manufacture of alcohol would aid the war effort. As a result, most Canadian provinces enacted some sort of alcohol ban prior to Canada's short-lived federal ban, enacted near the end of the war in 1918 and expiring a year after the hostilities ended. The impact of prohibition on Canada's liquor industry was substantial and felt long after it was repealed, with 75% of its breweries having closed by 1928. However, the prohibition was conveniently uh, fortuitous for some, the Bronfman's chief among them. This is interesting. Given the provincial nature of prohibition in Canada prior to its brief stint as a federal policy, the differences between the temperance laws of various provinces provided numerous loopholes that the Bronfmans were able to exploit to great effect. Uh, So successful were the Bronfmans at aptly working in the gray area of the varied and often temporary gaps between provincial laws that another Peter Newman remarked in his biography of the Bronfman's, sometimes it almost seemed that the American Congress and the Canadian federal provincial legislatures must have secretly held a grand conclave to decide one issue, how they could draft anti-liquor laws and regulations that would help maximize the Bronfman brothers' bootlegging profits. Um, In one example, during World War I, uh, three eldest Bronfman brothers, Abe, Harry, and Sam, exploited the fact that Manitoba and Ontario, while prohibiting the sale of liquor within the province, also allowed alcohol to be imported. The brothers set up several mail-order liquor businesses throughout these two provinces and profited handsomely, that is, until the ban on interprovincial trading would go into effect in 1918 with federal prohibition. However, federal prohibition also came with a loophole which allowed alcohol to be sold for medicinal purposes. (laughs) This prompted Harry Bronfman to create a wholesale drug company that permitted him to import alcohol in bulk and provide it to area pharmacies. He placed its offices next door to one of the family's Ritzer hotels, the Balmoral, and its business model involved offering doctors a bonus for each liquor prescription they wrote if that prescription was fulfilled by a pharmacy whose liquor was furnished by the Bronfmans. A Canadian writer, Mordecai Reichler, would later allege the initial license for Harry's new enterprise claimed the Canada Pure Drug Company was acquired by a well-placed bribe to a prominent politician. Other family biographers like Michael Maris uh, called the firm a thinly disguised liquor outlet that soon uh, pumped more whiskey into retail drugstores than any other wholesaler in Saskatchewan. The company also benefited from the corruption of the province's liter- liquor commission, which allowed a percentage of the liquor it realized it seized to be sold back to Harry Bronfman, who then resold it at an exorbitantly marked up price. Interesting. Subsequent government investigations that were part of Royal Commission would further allege that the Bronfman family drug company was never engaged in the drug business, but can 
confined its activities to the sale of alcohol in the Western provinces, adding that the company imported hundreds of thousands of gallons of alcohol from the United States out of the Bronfman brothers. It had been Sam who was sent to travel across Canada and the United States, which allowed him to build a vast network that included numerous American and Canadian distilleries and bootleggers. This network would in a few years prove essential to the Bronfmans, especially Sam, once prohibition arrived in Canada's southern neighbor, the United States. So that's the end of that part of chapter two. I'm going to take a break, see what you guys think. Um, you know, we were just talking today about uh, alcohol <laughs> and how problematic it is um, and how much damage can be done to the alcohol in this industry by simply making psychedelics available. Um, one session with psychedelics was enough to reduce alcohol consumption and even um, uh, encourage abstinence. Uh, alcohol abstinence completely in 45% of the participants, which is pretty freaking mind blowing. Um, I think I have that right. Yeah. Um, and it's just nuts. So maybe more about Hunter, I think because of the laptop. Ooh, I don't, I wonder how much of the Hunter laptop is in her book. I'm not sure, but looking forward to reading more. That's just a uh, introduction to chapter two and I am tired of reading already. So we're going to, Continue in the next one, and I'll see you guys there.